would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John 17. Last Lord's Day we introduced the prayer of John 17 in which we attempted to give something of a sense of the significance of this prayer and I endeavored to tell you that though we call it the high priestly prayer there wasn't, there's really nothing especially priestly in the prayer above every other type of prayer I mean all prayer in a sense is priestly there's nothing about the priesthood of Jesus that has necessarily elicited this prayer because prophets prayed and kings prayed and we saw numerous examples of that in the Old Testament and they far more than priests were interceders in prayer again the uh, priests brought Offerings They officiated at the altar. And though, of course, Jesus does that in terms of the heavenly sanctuary, in the book of Hebrews, prayer essentially is not necessarily limited to the priesthood of our Lord Jesus. The nature of the prayer really is, is a disclosure of the things upon the heart of Christ as he faced the cross. And he faced the reality of his own neediness and his own... Uh, the needs of his own disciples. We saw not only the significance of the prayer, and I think part of it, because this is the concerns of his own heart for himself and for his disciples. Um, It's also a model for our prayers. What should we be concerned about when we come before the Lord? Well, praise John 17, and you'll have a lot of things to keep you busy, a lot of things to be concerned about. We saw the scope of this prayer to be huge. Jesus not only prays for himself, and not only prays for his present disciples, but he prays for us this morning. All future generations of those who would come to faith through the apostolic word. And we saw the structure of this prayer to be simply what I've already indicated. Jesus begins with himself, prays for his own glory, the glory of the Father, And then he prays for his immediate disciples, who now he's leaving, that they would be kept, that they would be preserved, that they would be unified, that they would be sanctified. And then he prays for all who would believe on him through the gospel. Throughout history, he prays for his church. This morning we begin to consider Jesus' prayer for himself. And I had an ambitious concern, to uh, an ambitious plan this morning. It's kind of indicated in the title of the morning message in the bulletin that Jesus prays for his glory, but I'm not getting there this morning. Just not working out for me to get that far. Uh, because I had a previous concern that is really going to be the substance of my message this morning. And that's what this prayer of Jesus tells us about prayer in general. So that's what I want to do this morning. What do these verses in this prayer tell us about prayer in general. And I want to begin, not so much by the general meaning of prayer, but a specific area in which I think we neglect prayer. I know I neglect prayer. And that's that prayer usually should follow ministry we have to other people. That when we are privileged of the Lord to engage in ministry to other people, as I'm privileged this morning, to speak to you from the Word of God. We ought to pray following that ministry. The popular way of doing things is to pray prior to every ministry. I know I pray a lot during the week. Lord, give me light into this text. Give me the sermon to preach to your people. And so I pray a lot prior to a ministry. 
lot of churches you have a group of men, a group of people in the church that will meet in a consistory room or meet in a, another room in which uh, prayer is, pray, is offered uh, for the ministry of the word. Lord bless as we gather in worship and bless the pastor as he prays and you're praying for me during the week. You're praying for me, I'm sure, prior um, to ministry. What do we do after ministry? Well, after we have a brief prayer, we say either amen and everybody exits or maybe a song is sung, is a post-sermon uh, song. We all gather at the door, we express appreciation, we converse with one another, we get into our cars, we blare the radio, we go home. And um, how much time do we spend afterwards in prayer to God? In this passage, we read in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, his prayer to his father followed three chapters of ministry to his disciples. And if you include chapter 13, that'd be four chapters. Four chapters of ministry, and then one full chapter of prayer. So longest prayer of Jesus recorded for us in Scripture. And it follows ministry. Three chapters or four chapters of teaching followed by a full chapter of prayer. What do we do in sermons? We get 59 minutes to talk to one another. If it, well, it's 40 minutes or 39 minutes talking to one another in a minute in a concluding prayer. Do we really believe that prayer is important? Now, I'm not necessarily advocating changing the way we do things in public worship. I'm not saying this sermon should necessarily be followed by a prayer meeting. I'm not saying that um, you know, we should do anything in the changing of the practices, but I'm just saying we can do better. I can do better. I can do better in worship, planning a closing prayer, taking time in the afternoon to go to prayer. When the sermon's fresh upon our minds, when the ministry of God's Word is in our thoughts, not just to think about it and recall it, but to ask God to bless it, to ask God to use His Word in significant ways in our lives and in the lives of other people, to pray in the light of what we've heard from God's Word uh, for the church and for the future of the church. After teaching is prime time for such activities. And I think Jesus' example should be instructive to us. He teaches and he prays extensively after he teaches. That's the first thing I'd say to you about the subject of prayer. We should pray more after we hear God's word. I'm thankful that Vivian takes time to play a hymn a couple of times. She goes through it. So that in your seats, before we rise from our seats and look at other people, that at least the piano's telling us, don't go anywhere. Sit where you are. Use that time to come before the Lord, to ask Him to bless His Word to you. And make some resolve that I'm not going to forget what I'm asking the Lord now. Maybe after dinner to go get alone and have some time in prayer about those things. Um, again, 
our Lord's example to us should lead to more prayer post-sermons, post-hearing the Word of God, or post-ministering to others in other contexts, uh, to gather together and to pray with one another, or to pray on our own uh, for the blessing of God upon the ministries of His Word. I have a second thing. The second thing is this, that more than we're accustomed, prayer should be readily offered, at least more than we're accustomed, when we're in the presence of other people. When we're in the presence of other people. I want to point out to you, here in John 17, you don't read anything of Jesus leaving the upper room. He doesn't go into a place of secrecy apart from his disciples. He seems to be offering this prayer in their presence. Chapter 18 and verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, what words are these now? These are not the words he spoke to the disciples. That begins 17.1, but 18.1 refers to the prayers or the words that Jesus spoke to his Father. It's referring to his prayer. When Jesus had prayed, when Jesus had spoken these words of prayer, he went out with his disciples across the book Kedron, the book Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. The disciples and Jesus leave together post prayer. I don't see that there was that the disciples heard this, the discourse, but didn't hear the prayer. I don't think that says Jesus spoke in a hush or in a soft voice or in a way that no one would hear but the Father. I know he taught that when you pray, go into your closet, but that's not meant to be that strict uh, absence of the presence of other people. That just means the attitude of our hearts. We're not praying for the glory of people. The people would think we're spiritual. That's the importance of the instruction of the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus seems to be praying these words about his disciples in their very presence. I just wonder if he meant that to be instruction to them. Here's what I'm praying for you so that you would pray for yourselves in the light of my prayers. We will likely feel very uncomfortable if in the midst of a conversation in the midst of fellowship, in the midst of sitting at table, someone without much notice simply lifted up their eyes to heaven and began to offer a somewhat lengthy prayer. They would say, how strange, how strange. Most of us would be uncomfortable ourselves doing such a thing. But it seems it was very natural for Jesus to do that very thing. Especially it would be most natural in a time as Jesus was in when especially the help and presence of God was needed. But now think how this might work. Think, if you will, of the last time you had something of a horror show of an argument with someone else. It's not difficult for me to think of recent times when such horror shows occurred. Think of that time when you engaged in a conversation with another person that you now regret the words you used. You said things that should never have been said. 
you heard things that the other person should never have spoken to you. Can you imagine just for a moment how the conversation might have gone if one of you or both of you had begun to offer prayer for wisdom, begun to offer prayer for grace to govern the conversation you had with that person? In retrospect, I ask, why not? Why didn't I pray? Why didn't I say, brother, I think the time is stopped for discussion. Time has begun to pray. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray about this. Think of the last time somebody came to you to ask for your opinion about something, your counsel about a matter. And you being in the know, being a well-versed, biblically literate Christian, just began to spill your opinions. You kind of a little bit of pride, proud of yourself. You're so wise, so knowing, and so able. Somebody out of the blue asks you something. Hey, man, don't even don't have to continue. I got you covered. I know the answer. And you just began to spew it out of your mouth. And you know that. That advice you gave just didn't fly. That advice you gave wasn't quite right. Things ended up not so well, and and you wish you'd never spoken, at least not so confidently. Now, I'm not saying prayer is going to get you to solve every argument. I'm not saying that prayer is going to get you to always offer wise counsel. But could you imagine a scenario in which you first did offer prayer to God? to guide you with his counsel before you offered your own? Or a time when someone made a proposal and asked you to make a decision upon that proposal and you didn't make that decision with prayer because it would have been embarrassing to just stop and pray. It would have been unusual. You ended up to be like the Israelites when the Gibeonites came and offered their proposal and you didn't ask counsel from the Lord. That's what the problem with the Gibeonites were what was according to the book of Joshua. They didn't seek the Lord's counsel. You ended up being deceived. You ended up bearing the wounds of your own haste when you could have paused and you could have prayed before you acted. Before you spoke. How would your prayer have affected your own judgment? Or the other person? Or the way the matter got decided? At any rate, we should resist the temptation not to pray just simply because other people are around. Ask them to join you. Remember Jesus in the upper room. Spoke to these men and prayed in their presence. It's okay to do that. You don't have to wait for prayer meeting. You could use any one of these rooms that are empty after worship. If you were talking to someone and need a place to pray. Remember one time a guy came and said to me after an evening service, Pastor, can I stay in the building and pray? Absolutely. He spent about an hour praying in Portuguese. I didn't understand a word. But I said, man, that man can pray. That man can pray. God knew what he was praying about. And I was just impressed that somebody could spend an hour in prayer. I tried to do the same thing the next day. 20 minutes, I was spiritually exhausted. And that man prayed for an hour. 
So that's the second thing I want to say about prayer. Not only should prayer be utilized after we minister to others, but praying in the presence of others and with others is something we should be cultivating and doing and not shying away from it because of some sense of the unusualness of such a procedure. Let's get used to it because it's something we should be doing. I remember back in the days when the Lord first converted me, they had what was called the Jesus Movement. And people, the circles I ran, we'd stop anywhere. You know, okay, we're at the corner waiting for a light. Let's pray. We'd all lock arms and we'd all start to pray. Um, we grew old and we grew too experienced to be doing that sort of thing. And it's simply not, not at all commendable. Not at all commendable. I'll just remind you from Jesus' own example. Another thing I'd say to you is that prayer is acceptable when it's not offered in the right position that we've been instructed to pray in. There's nothing magical about bowing our heads or folding our hands or dropping to a knee or falling on our faces. In fact, those examples are not many in Scripture. Here Jesus prays in a very different manner, in a very different posture. He lifts his eyes to heaven and said, He lifted his eyes to heaven. Let me say, first of all, posture is not the most important thing. There are examples of people who prayed in other fashions. Yes, prostrated on the ground. Yes, uh, beating on their breasts, crying out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But there's something to be said for the fact that lifting up the eyes to heaven gives a sense of God's exalted majesty and transcendence. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's not that the hills would bring an answer or his help, but the Lord who dwelt on Zion. That's probably the mountain he's referring to. It's one of those psalms of ascent that they likely were singing as they made their journey up into the Jerusalem for the yearly feasts and the look into the mountain of, God, of God's presence and the realization they would be ascending into the presence of the God who dwelt on Sinai. Remember in the prayer of Solomon from the dedication of the temple, he, pray, asks, he says, when, we, when our eyes turn towards the temple, hear our prayers directed to the temple and hear in heaven and grant us the answer. There was no sense that it was the temple that was some kind of a magical um, thing. No, God in heaven would hear the prayers, but yet the recognition his earthly presence was in that temple, and the idea was to pray towards his presence, our face towards the presence of God, seeking his in terms of his presence. And of course, Jesus knows his Father, his presence is, is, is above the strife, it's over everything. It's, it's not so much thinking in terms of the physical heavens, what's called the celestial heavens, where you see the clouds in the sky, or the, um, I'm sorry, the terrestrial heavens where you see the clouds in the sky, or the celestial heavens where you see the stars at night. Those are created things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the place of his dwelling The lifting up of the eyes is a recognition of the transcendence of Almighty God. Whatever's taking place upon this earth, 
God reigns over it. God is above it. He's above the strife. He's above the conflict. Not that he's attached or indifferent, but above it all. He's not caught up in the morass of the troubles of life and hence unable to help. But he's above all things and hence a very present help to us in all of our times of trouble. Again, a lot of times people think, if we think of God and His transcendent majesty, that somehow we're making Him unrelatable. I tell you, God is most relatable when we have greater thoughts of Him. Because He can help us. He's not caught up in the tyranny of the urgent or the now or the stress and troubles we're going through. He's not, he's not sharing the brokenness of our, whole, of our life's experience. He's the ever-blessed God with all of His excellencies and fullness and glory who can come to us in our weakness and in our neediness with His strength and presence and help and comforts. Again, I'm not saying change the way that you pray. But eyes lifted up to heaven ain't bad. It's not a bad way. It's not a bad sense of the transcendent majesty of Almighty God. In the days when I used to hang out with my good friend Greg Nichols, he would pray as he was driving a car. I never thought that was a good thing to do. I never thought it was something I should ever emulate because of my practice when I prayed to close my eyes. And I said as much to him when I drove up to Doldsville in our last time together. I said, brother, I'd love to pray, but I'm going to have to ask you to. I can't pray as you do. When you drove a car with your eyes open, I'll pray and close my eyes in a second. That's just how I pray. <laughs> Very dangerous to do it that way. But other than driving a car with your eyes closed, you can keep your eyes closed. But having eyes open having a sense of the majesty and transcendence of God. Those prayers are heard. Jesus was heard. It's not that posture is all important, but I think this is a a posture you should consider. And certainly that understanding of God's majesty and glory and transcendence should suffuse all of your prayers, whatever the posture is. And I finally want to say to you that Prayer is both intimate and it is bold. Jesus prays to God as his Father. Now certainly God was his Father in terms of the inter-Trinitarian relations of divine persons. He's the eternal Son. And as the eternal Son, he's eternally related to God as the Son. As the eternally begotten Son. He didn't become the Son when he was incarnated. He didn't become the Son when He was resurrected from the dead. Although there are aspects of sonship, as we saw in our Sunday school this morning, that's highlighted and accentuated in those acts of incarnation and resurrection. But those aspects of sonship in incarnation and resurrection is simply a reflection of an eternal glory that He possessed. And Jesus is going to say in this prayer, Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It was a glory of relationship that the Son had with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And in that eternal relationship, the Father was the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit. And so there was a Father-Son relationship even then, in an eternal relationship. Again, it's beyond the ability of mortal man to conceive of of, of the fullness of what that relationship is, but it is revealed to us that what we see in time is a reflection of that eternal inter-Trinitarian relation of the persons of the Godhead. But I think Jesus is not praying just simply as eternal God. He's praying as the God-man. He's praying as the, eternal, as the incarnate mediator between God and man. He's praying on behalf of his disciples. He's praying for the church in all future generations. And when he lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, it is the human Jesus, as well as the divine Jesus, as the God-man who's offering this prayer unto God. He speaks to God as an incarnate son in, in his enfleshed humanity. Not just God as God is in himself, again, but as the God-man, as the one sent by the Father to fulfill the Father's purposes and the salvation of the world. But note, Jesus doesn't say, Oh, dread sovereign of the universe. I've heard a lot of Scottish ministers pray in that way. But Jesus does not. He doesn't say, Thou holy, majestic, supreme, Almighty God of the universe, way, way, way out there, far away and distant. Now Jesus prays just the way he told his disciples to pray. As a son. Jesus is a son by his own eternal relationship to his Father. In the way of eternal begetting and eternal and in, in time uh, having uh, incarnate sonship and resurrection sonship, but a son calling out to his God as his father. He says, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God later on in chapter 20. And I think Jesus makes a distinction there. He doesn't just say, I ascend to our God. And our Father, as if everyone was involved in relationship to God as God and Father, in the same way he's related to God as God and Father, he says it differently. He says, I ascend to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. So there is a distinction, but yet there is a parallel. There is an understanding of the way we come to relate to God by way of adoption. By way of coming to him through faith in Christ, through his name. As Jesus told his disciples, they're now to call upon the Father in his name. They come as adopted sons and daughters, given the right of approach through the blood shedding of shedding of the Lord Jesus, and having received the spirit of adoption, whereby we can cry out, Abba Father. We come into the presence of God with the fullness of freedom to come not with shyness but with the sense of acceptance. And it's our right to seek our Father. We used to have a study in our house when we lived up in the town before this building was built. 
There's reasons I won't say right now. I feel, feel the need to have a study in the church building. I've got to get myself dressed and leave the house and come to work. In my house, too many distractions. But you know, I would go into my study at my house with the door closed. And I wouldn't have expected anybody to just barge on in. If you came and barged on in, probably, if you did it today, probably it wouldn't be all that well accepted. But there's a little character that would just always come and sneak and open the door and, and peer in just to see what I was doing. And it was my son. My son. My son had free access to my presence, regardless of where I was, regardless of what I was doing. I never shied him away. I never shooed him away. I never said, you're not welcome. Because he's my son. And my son can come into my presence, regardless of what I'm doing and who I'm doing it with, and know that daddy is always going to receive him. And God is our father in that sense. We should have that sense of assurance, that sense of entitlement. God is my father. I can't approach him. I don't need to shy away. I don't need to be bashful. I don't need to be sitting about wondering, will my prayers be heard? Your prayers will be heard. Jesus told us, if you being evil, what he means by that, you being self-absorbed and self-centered, you being the guy that likes to sit around on Saturday and watch the college football games, and, and you turn the rest of the world out, and you don't want anybody to bother you, and the kid comes and says, Daddy, I'm hungry. Hey, you're not going to give him a stone, but you probably say, later, later. But eventually you're going to give him bread, right? But you're going to say, not now. Get out of here, you kid. And that's what we do. We're all caught up with ourselves. Yeah, we'll feed you. Get mom to feed you. Go, go get it yourself. We don't want to be bothered. We're evil. We're self-absorbed. We're self-centered. This is the God who's come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Comes with his proposals of love, his offers of marriage, saying, Receive me, and I'll make you my bride. The greatness of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he will not say no, he will not turn us away. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, even when you're self absorbed and often reluctant, how much more? How much more will your heavenly Father give, give, give good gifts to those who ask? Give the best of all gifts. He's already demonstrated His love to you. You were dead in your sins and Christ came to liberate us from our sins. He demonstrated His own love to you that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unlovely, unlovable, how in the world could anybody have loved us in what we were by nature? And yet the God of heaven set his love upon us. He says, I love you with an everlasting love. How confidence we should have that that God will hear our prayers. That we have a right to his presence. We have in his infinite condescension and love and mercy we have his ear his ears are open to the cries of the righteous Jesus was heard he was heard Hebrews tells us through his tears 
through his tears. He was heard. The tears of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was heard. The Father heard him. The Father answers his prayer. The Father gave him the glory he had with him from the foundation of the world. The Father hears his prayers for the preservation of his people. The Father hears his prayers for the unity of the church. I know it's, it's, it's a project not yet done, but it's a project... I know it's been thousands of years in process, but ultimately we have a hope that we will come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's a work that we need to engage in, but Jesus has prayed for it, prayed for it, and it will be. He prays that where He is, we will be also. These are prayers that are heard because He's a Son. The Father delights to hear the prayers of his children. And when he tells, shows us the example of prayer, we as adopted sons and daughters, having the spirit of adoption, need to come before God's presence, knowing we have a place in his presence, and knowing we can come boldly to a throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. I was surprised too when I got that stuff from verse 1, but I did. It's there. It's there. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, may his example in prayer teach us, teach us the importance of praying after ministry of his word. Teach us the importance of praying in the presence of others, unashamed and unembarrassed. Teach us the importance of the recognition of the God who transcends the earthly, to whom we can lift up our eyes, to the one who alone can help us, to come to us in our earthly misery and need, and to come with the confidence, the boldness, the assurance of adopted sons and daughters, that this God will hear our prayers, will receive our persons, and will do us good. May the Lord be pleased to instruct us in these things. Let's go before him with thankful hearts. Father, we're thankful for this example of our Lord Jesus, these thoughts that come out from this very simple narrative of his life of prayer, that, Lord, our life of prayer would be enriched that our approach to you in prayer would be informed by your word. Teach us to pray. We know not how to pray as we ought. Give us help. Give us instruction. And give us to embrace these principles we've looked at this morning, that our own approach to you would be more regular, would be more fruitful, would be in concert with other believers, would be more to the praise of your own glory. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to be our helper as we come and we ask these mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.